Surround yourself with people who will be brutally honest. There will be plenty of time for adulation in your careers and for uh, batons and gold medals and all the rest, but you will get better and you will reach the level of success you want to only by surrounding yourself with people that are telling you when you're messing up. That was CNN anchor and chief Washington correspondent Jake Tapper in conversation with Dean Jelani Cobb. Jake was part of the team at CNN who won a 2023 DuPont Award for their marathon coverage of the war in Ukraine. Hello and welcome to an episode of On Assignment. I'm Abby Wright, Executive Director of Professional Prizes here at Columbia Journalism School, joined today as usual by my friend and colleague, Lisa R. Cohen. She's the director of the DuPont Columbia Awards. Hey, Lisa. Hey, Abby. I am really excited to share this episode with everyone. It was a long time coming. We're very, we were very, very happy to have Jake Tapper. He had a lot of wisdom to share. Last month, we got to host him here on campus. He joined our dean to talk to our students. Right. And for those who don't know, Jake and Dean Cobb actually go way back. They started their journalism careers around the same time in Washington, D.C. So it was really interesting to hear what they had to say about political coverage today. They went all the way back to their humble, it's a good word for it, beginnings in journalism to the current state of American politics uh, and to the infamous town hall that CNN did earlier this year with former President Donald Trump. That's right. I think that was the one that Caitlin Collins did with Donald Trump, right? And it caused some controversy. Yeah. And there's a trigger warning here. We're actually going to include a brief excerpt of that in case you missed it for some context. So speaking of Jake Tapper and Donald Trump, just this week, Jake broke more news when he reported on the record remarks by John Kelly, Trump's former chief of staff, confirming a number of damning statements that Trump made while president behind closed doors, attacking U.S. service members and veterans. So there's a lot of news breaking this week, as there was the week of this conversation back in late August. Right, Lisa? Yeah, that was a big week. Well, first, there was this horrific racist hate-inspired shooting in Jacksonville, and Jake references it in the conversation. A white man opened fire in a Dollar General and killed three black people. And then there was also the news that broke on the day that Jake and Jelani actually spoke about former President Donald Trump. But uh, we're going to let Jake tell you about that one. Right. There's a lot to talk about here. So at the end of the conversation, Jake takes questions from our students in the audience. And you'll hear a little bit of that as well. So let's get to it. Here's an edited version of the conversation between Dean Jelani Cobb and Jake Tapper. Hey. Hey. How are you doing? Good. Good. We've come a long way, huh? I know. We're actually like (laughs) respectable adults at this point. We didn't dress like this in the 90s. No, we did not, you know. Um, I mean, wearing pants even. I know. No, I mean, I think you dressed like you were in a Nirvana video, and I dressed (laughs) like I was in a, like, NWA video. And so, um, uh, so I think we can start there before we jump into the kind of immediacy, which is that uh, you know, as background, uh, Jake and I started out together at the Washington City Paper. Um, and for those of you who don't know, uh, there's such a thing called newspapers <laughs> back then. They actually used to print it on paper, which was a kind of astounding innovation. 
Um, but we were both at the Washington City Paper, which was an alternative weekly uh, where you kind of covered everything under the sun. And now, looking at the politics you know, of that era that uh, were in and around the city, which we thought were fractious and uh, you know, volatile and all these things, which seemed completely to be kind of minor league stuff uh, compared to what we think about now, I'll ask like a 10,000 foot question, which is, you know, what's different about covering politics now as opposed to when we started it in the Clinton, Lewinsky, Republicans versus Democrat era of the 90s? First of all, let me just say it's an, it's an honor to be here and, and thank you so much for having me. It's uh, an honor to be sitting next to Dean Cobb, who I admire so much uh, and have known for more years than many of you have been alive. And uh, so uh, it was, it's crazy to think, but it was a much more civil time. Um, the biggest political news writ large, well, there are two things. There was um, the Clinton Lewinsky uh, scandal. Sure. And I remember when they uploaded the Star Report right. on our creaky uh, computers, and we all tried to download it and read it and all that at the same time. And the servers just all collapsed. Not City Paper, I mean, like the national server. Right. Like, um, but then the other big story was uh, the contract with America and the Republican Revolution of 94. Um, which, looking back on it, uh, you know, they were elected fair and square and actually won their elections and <laughs> honored the results of those who didn't win their elections and such. So it, it, was, it was a very divisive time in many ways, um, but also there were still rules and, and, uh, and uh, expectations of behavior by politicians that make it look quaint. Um, the idea that um, Bob Livingston, who was supposed to be Speaker of the House, but then it came out that right. he was having an affair, and so he resigned and took himself out of contention, seems uh, of a different era. Right. Because he was having an affair? You know, I mean, that, that seems like nothing today. Right. And maybe it should be nothing, I don't know. But I'm just saying, like, it's just like a very different time from, I mean, you guys read the papers, Stormy Daniels, et cetera. I mean, yeah, I mean, as opposed to now, which is, you know, I guess the bigger question, um, what have you learned about navigating? The last time we talked here at Columbia uh, was at the DuPont Awards, and we were talking about just all of really the shrapnel that was flying around in the atmosphere, and that was 2017 or 2018. Um, what do you think you have learned in terms of operating as a journalist who covers politics in this climate? So I was reminded by, by Lisa that last time I was here that CNN sent security ahead of time <laughs> to like scope it out because we were on constant uh, death threats. So uh, in a way, at least we're, maybe we're just in a, in a respite right now, but in a way things were worse then than they are now in some, in some ways because uh, we were getting you know regular death threats and it wasn't just words, there was that Sure. That guy, Caesar Sayoc, you might remember, who sent a bunch of pipe bombs through the mail, and you know, CNN was one of them, and et cetera. Um, what have I learned? I have learned that I have got to report the news so that it holds. So when I have a 13-year-old and a 16-year-old, 
and I think about, I am reporting the news so that when they look back in 20 or 30 years, they saw that I was telling the truth and covering it regardless of fear or favor, and I was not trying to both sides lies, and I was not trying to both sides authoritarianism, and I was telling the truth and making them proud. And I think about them when I report all the time. Mm -hmm. But of course, the other side of that is that we're now operating in a climate where for a fairly sizable portion of the country, the default is to believe that you're not doing any of those things. And I wonder how that factors into your approach to stories. There are people who think that if you're not both sizing something, then you're guilty of the kind of standard liberal bias that we hear in the media all the time. What does that mean in terms of how you approach a story? Well, let me just also say that it's not the converse of that, but part of that, part of the position I'm trying to take is not pretending that Hunter Biden is going to win ethical businessman of the year contests, right? I mean, um, I was actually under the impression that he was a shoe-in <laughs> for that. Uh, I'm shocked. He was breaking news right now. You, you heard it first right. here. I, I think, um, no, I mean, that's, that's part of it, right? It's not, it's not like pretending that the Hunter Biden scandal is as big a deal as any of uh, Mr. Trump's uh, most recent legal troubles with the special counsel or the district attorney in Fulton County, but not pretending that there's nothing there and that if we are going to be trusted, we cannot be censoring ourselves because we're afraid that our more progressive viewers don't want to hear about that. Therefore, we're not going to cover it. Well, is it news today? Is it important today? Then we cover it today. We, don't, we, we cover it in proportion. We cover it with context, but we cover it. Um, you had a question, though. I no, I mean, that's, a, that's exactly it, though. We were talking about, you know, when something is both sides, both sidesing something, and when you make a judgment to say this is not equivalent to that, yeah. and knowing that there will be people who will not receive that in the way that you are intending professionally. There are, there are bad faith actors out there, and I can't do anything about it, and I can't worry about it. It, it's annoying, I'm going to pretend it is, I'm not going to pretend it isn't, but, but there just are. There is an entire industry, there has been for a while now, of people who it's their, literally their business model to criticize and attack and undermine journalists who are trying just to be honest, fair, nonpartisan, non-ideological journalists. Um, and it doesn't matter what you say or do. In terms of the... Um, people though, the public, um, I can't worry about the however many million people it is who think that the election was stolen. I don't demonize those people. They have been lied to by politicians and an entire misinformation ecosystem. Um, but I can't worry about trying to appeal to them. All I can do, and I think a lot of people at CNN feel this way, is just try to provide the best first draft of history in a non-ideological way that also stands up for truth and facts and, and decency um, in, in some cases, and is a channel that just calls them as we see them. Um, and if there is a sizable part of the population that doesn't want that, then that's, that's our tough in terms of ratings, but we just have to provide that and hope that when people do want that, they know where to come. 
Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. Three substantial legal developments when it comes to the legal cases involving the 45th president of the United States, Donald Trump. One, in the federal case brought by special counsel Jack Smith, where Trump is accused of staging a conspiracy to overturn the 2020 election. Today, Judge Tanya Chutkin set the trial date for that case, the federal case about trying to overturn the election, for March 4th, 2024. So I'm curious uh, about the news from today um, in which you know, the judge in Atlanta uh, has set, I think it's March 4th is the date uh, for uh, the trial around the, the multiple indictments um, that have come out of the attempt to overturn the election in Georgia. Uh, we've never had a former president indicted before. We've never had certainly a former president stand trial uh, for something of this scale. And we've used this term unprecedented, 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 et cetera, uh, so many times. I'm wondering you know, if there is a concern internally when you're having a conversation about how you approach a story, if you, people will think that you're hyperbolic or, or that you know, you're screaming at the top of your lungs uh, or how you approach really fairly novel terrain you know, as a political reporter. So um, it's not hyperbolic if we do not act, uh, well, first of all, we shouldn't, we can't act excited, it, not in what I do for a living, which is different from, for instance, what um, uh, Rachel Maddow does for a living, which is not to disparage her, but she's doing something very different from what I try to do, I think. Mm -hmm. um, How so? Well, I mean, she is, she's an opinion person. She's, an, she's ideological. Again, that's not meant disparagingly at all, and her two podcasts are amazing. But she definitely brings a progressive point of view to her work, and that is what she is doing with her audience. Like, I do a news show, she does an opinion show, and there's a long, great history of ideological journalism in this country dating back to uh, the colonial era, when one paper was aligned with the Whigs and the other was aligned with the Democrat-Republicans, and it's fine and great. But, but not what I do, I don't think. Um, but in any case, uh, I, you know, I think it's important for us to not get excited about it, uh, about the news, one way or the other, whether, what, what, whichever team deep down we might, may or may not be rooting for. And I think it's also just important to like, be, be straight with people. Like for instance, on my show, we have never taken District Attorney Bragg's um, case against Donald Trump particularly seriously because legal experts we have don't take it particularly seriously. Um, and which is not to say that he won't be fined or sentenced to something, but it's just not the strongest case. Uh, it's just a boy who cried wolf kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So I, I wonder, um, when you say that's not what you do, there's this big roiling debate in various corners of the journalism world, one of them being this one, um, because we've had you know, many conversations about it. Um, but there's this, this debate regarding the viability of the idea of objectivity. We were established by uh, Joseph Pulitzer out of the recognition of what kinds of disastrous things could come from journalism that was too slanted. You know, the, uh, the battles with the Hearst papers 
uh, at the beginning of the 20th century that, well, the end of the 19th century that led to the Spanish-American War. Uh, and this school is part of Joseph Pulitzer's attempt to make sure that journalism would not forget that lesson that he learned uh, so painfully. Uh, and so there's the idea, and he wanted what he called at that time uh, independent journalism, uh, which is journalism that was not, as you point out, you know, the papers would be openly affiliated with one political party or another, uh, and he had this noble dream of papers that weren't, that didn't care what party you belonged to. If you were taking bribes, they were going to report it. If you were inept, they were going to report it. If you were not showing up for votes, they were going to report it. And that's a great innovation. On the other side of it, though, there are people who would say that the objective stance is typically making things appear to be equal that are not equal, uh, or it is the kind of default voice of a very middle class, typically male, typically white establishment uh, that doesn't lend itself to the kind of truth telling that's responsible for actually democratic societies making any kind of progress. And I wonder, that's a very long, pro <laughs> no, very long preamble, but I wonder how you think about that. So I think it is a fair criticism that there is no pure objectivity and that historically uh, objectivity has meant what do Ivy educated, rich, white, straight men think. Uh, often Christian, but not always. I think that is a fair criticism, and I think it is important in, uh, I know on my staff, uh, I'm, I fit that categorization I just made, but I think I'm the only one uh, who fits all of those traditional um, stereotypical, mm -hmm. this is what the medium has meant. Because, not because I'm like super great guy, but because all those other experiences make me a better journalist. Mm. Um, and because, and people uh, push back on me and they don't get in trouble um, because it is important for um, these discussions to happen. So, I, I acknowledge that I have biases, even if I try not to be biased, let's say in a politically ideological way. How, how could I not have a bias of a Jewish upper middle class kid from Philadelphia who went to Dartmouth? I mean, how could I not? That's me, that's who I am. Um, but if we really try to make a point of not hiring only that type and hiring all sorts of people, then we can aspire to, you never reach it, but then you can aspire to the most fair, uh, honest news broadcast that you can do. And also, if I could just say, like, so to talk about uh, what happened in Jacksonville and also to happen 60 years ago today, which was the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, um, we had Nicole Hannah-Jones on the show today because that perspective is much more valuable than my perspective and her opinion is much more important than my non-opinion. Um, so that's another way to correct for that. Mm -hmm. You know, we had this conversation in which we both simultaneously recognize the value of your experience, you know, the places in the world that you've seen and that have shaped you and also 
the tools of journalism that allow you to understand sometimes radically different experiences, because often that will be what the job requires of you. And there's that kind of balance which brings to mind the person we were talking about in the other room, which is David Carr, our mutual mentor. Uh, and that was one of the things, he was the editor-in-chief of the uh, Washington City paper when we were there. That was one of the things I think that Carr did really, really well, um, which is he brought this pretty unusual group of people together and, um, and then sent us out to cover the city that we're in. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you said, uh, what you said still bounces around in your head of the things that Carr taught you. So I don't know if you read the interview with Dean Cobb in Vanity Fair today uh, by Joe Pompeo, but he, he is quoted saying something that, is, that, that I have said to people too, which is um, about mistakes, about making mistakes and um, the voices in my head, or the voice in my head, it's David Carr's it's kind of nasal Minnesota <laughs> twang. Mm -hmm. So I, I did a lot of freelance journalism and then I joined City Paper in I think 98. Uh, and one of the first stories I wrote was just like a feature about, in the, in the front page part of the paper there was like short little news stories, maybe a thousand words, maybe. Um, and I did one about a local animal rights activist who thought the local Humane Society in D.C. was a little too itchy with the trigger finger on, the, uh, on killing uh, pets. And I conflated two different women in, in the story um, and that, that were on opposite sides. And then we got a letter to the editor, and it was my mistake. And Carr came over to my little cubicle to tell me about this mistake. And I was, as I was at the time, glib and didn't think it was that big a deal. And that was the last time I made a mistake at Washington City Paper because he put the fear in God in me about making mistakes. And, and uh, Lisa told me that you're very forgiving here about making mistakes, and that's great, enjoy it. Uh, <laughs> but, but outside on the sidewalk out there, they're not so forgiving. And, and uh, it just, you have to learn not to make those mistakes. Um, and those mistakes, they came in all shapes and sizes, because there would be, because I would pitch things to Carr, and, uh, and he would, things that didn't, that never saw the light of day, and he would, he was unforgiving in his edits. Uh, John, he right. was talking about. He, he didn't know that there was actually a lowercase <laughs> font on the, the computers. Everything was in all caps. And it wasn't just a correction. It was like, I don't know what you're thinking. This entire section sucks. It's horrible. <laughs> this doesn't add anything. And then like later, you know, then like after the thousand words that he blocked out, and there was, this is before strike through, um, it would, uh, he would be like, now you're cooking here, this part's okay. You right, know? right. I remember I had something where I paraphrased another writer and he crossed it out and said, this isn't even worth stealing. So <laughs> <laughs> but you should honestly, like I thank, I thank God that I had him uh, as, a, as, a, as my one man journalism school, um, David Carr. He was uh, br brutal and legendary, and as you may or may not know, he went on to become a, a media writer for the New York Times, and he died uh, tragically um, a few years ago. But uh, it's really good in everything you do to surround yourself with people who will be brutally honest. Mm -hmm. you will, there will be plenty of time for adulation in your careers and, and for 
and for uh, batons. I'm still waiting for mine, by the way. I did order it. Okay, and for batons and, and uh, gold medals and all the rest. But, but the, the, you will get better and you will reach the level of success you want to reach only by surrounding yourself with people that are telling you when you're messing up and doing so honestly and candidly. You, you know, um, I'm interested in your perspective on uh, a conversation I had earlier today, um, which is that I had two visitors from the Edelman Trust Institute. Um, for the past 23 years, they have been measuring uh, polling data, gathering polling data, uh, and conducting surveys about trust in public institutions um, in the United States and uh, in increasingly beyond. They told me something today that was stunning. They uh, posed, one of the questions that they posed was, uh, if you see a person who disagrees with you extremely, disagrees with your politics extremely, um, and they're in dire need of help, uh, would you help them? And 30% of the people said yes, which is astounding. We are reporting in an environment where people view not only us, but increasingly the world in those terms. How do you, one, how do you, what do you see being at the root of that? And two, is there anything that you see in your position uh, that you can do to remedy that in terms of the absence of trust in our uh, work? The incentive structures in the worlds of politics and news and news media and media uh, are right now, not all of them, but many of the incentive structures are geared towards division. Um, and that's just, I think that that's a factual statement. I don't even think that that's an opinion. I just, you, you see what, how the algorithms work in social media. You see what gets the most likes on any given website. And if you think that whatever, name, name whatever news organization you like and respect, if you think that they don't pay attention to what gets the most clicks that day, you're wrong. Because everybody's just trying to figure out how to make journalism survive. Um, so I think one of the problems is the incentive structure being um, focused on division and demonizing, not just division, but demonizing people. Um, these people are all this. These people are all that. Um, and it's very dangerous. It, it has already resulted in loss of life. Um, and uh, I think it's a, it's a real problem. And I think a lot of journalism, I don't think CNN, um, but I think a lot of journalism is geared toward it. Um, this is a small example, and it's a, and it's a petty example, but just indulge me for one second. So a few weeks, maybe it was one week ago. It might have been thir Thursday was when Trump got arrested. And we were just reporting on facts. Nobody was being gleeful. Nobody was excited about it. Nobody was saying anything other than this is what's happening, that's what's happening. Laura Ingram, who has a show on Fox at 10 o'clock, and God bless you if you didn't know that, um, 
did a front of her show, and it's about how gleeful CNN and MSNBC were about this latest news about whatever indictment it was. Wrapped it up with a bow saying, these people are sick. Now, it was a lie, it was all a lie, but this is a very small example. What is she trying to do? She's trying to make them hate me and everybody who works at CNN and MSNBC, um, based on something that wasn't even true. Not these people are wrong or they look at the world wrong or whatever, these people are sick. I mean, there is a, a true incentive structure and Murdoch's organization is the worst offender of it, but they're not the only ones that are, they're incentivized by trying to make Americans hate, I won't even say just Americans, having try, trying to make Americans hate other people, including their fellow Americans, but not exclusively. So what's the, the solution to that? And the other part of it is of course, you know, Christiane Amanpour was our commencement speaker, as you know, and she gave a very pointed critique of the way that CNN approached the town hall uh, with Donald Trump last spring. They didn't raid the house of Joe Biden. They didn't raid Obama. But Joe Biden didn't ignore a subpoena to get those documents back like Joe you Biden did. And took so that's the question. Boxes. But that's the question that investigators have, I think, is why you held on to those documents when you knew the federal government was seeking them and then had given you a subpoena to return them. Are you them. ready? Are you ready? Can I talk? Yeah, what's you the mind? answer? Can I, do you mind? I would like for you to answer the question. Okay, it's very simple to that's answer. That's why I asked it. It's very simple to, you're a nasty person, I'll tell you. Can you answer why She thought that that was exactly the wrong tack to take, given his history of mendacity, uh, his history of, of kind of overt hostility to the press, especially women journalists, et cetera, et cetera. I still respectfully disagree with allowing Donald Trump to appear in that particular format. We're all grown-ups, of course. And we can hold differing opinions without a great big blow-up. We know Trump and his tendencies. Everyone does. He just seizes the stage and dominates. No matter how much flack the moderator tries to aim at the incoming, it doesn't often work. For me, I would have dropped the mic at nasty person. But then that's me. I've been in the ring for a long time with many of these people. So what do you see as the approach that people do take in this context? So if you want me to talk about the town hall, I, I happily will, but you have to actually ask me questions about it because I'm, I'm not going to voluntarily jump into that, into that shark tank. Uh, all right, all right uh, Jake. I was not involved in it, but I will say this. We cannot pretend that... Donald Trump is not the leading Republican presidential nominee. We cannot pretend that um, whatever the percentage is, a third of the country thinks falsely that the election was stolen based on no evidence. Uh, we can't pretend, and I don't think that um, ignoring the Republican Party, its representatives in Congress, and its voters is a solution to anything. I don't. But I do think sticking to facts and um, calling out lies is important. I'll, I'll address the town hall. I'll just do it. So, um, so, I, it, let, me, so let me turn it on, on you for a second. Do you think that a town hall 
is an important thing for, is there a journalistic value in a town hall? Meaning, presidential candidate gets asked questions by voters. Is it, do you think that that's worthwhile? Okay, Jay. Just let me now, lead you now, to it. Now, let we're me about, to, now we're about to go. No, no, now I'm going to ask you a question. Okay. <laughs> in turn, which is, do you think that you handle a person with Donald Trump's track record differently than you handle a candidate who I does do. not have his track I record? I do. Right. I 100 percent do. I 100 percent do. So in response to your question, yes, a town hall is of news value. So then the question is, no, but they're getting confused because we're, we're answering <laughs> questions in the out of order. So look, here's the thing. Um, some of the criticisms I've heard of that, of the town hall, I agree with and some I don't. The first, the one I, the one I do not agree with is that we packed it with Trump supporters and therefore, um, you know, it was just like a, a Trump rally. That's not accurate. Now, you can take issue with the fact of how people in the audience were reacting, but the crowd was, as is the crowd for every town hall, Republicans and Republican-leaning independents in, in this case, New Hampshire. And when Joe Biden does a town hall, it's Democrats and Democratic-leaning independents in Iowa or whatever. And I know that the reaction from a lot of the people in the audience was jarring um, and I will just say, is it their existence and the reaction of the audience that you think is the issue or CNN airing it? Because No, no, no. Um, okay. Jake, it's more fundamental. Yeah. Because after January 6th, on January 7th, the observation, at least in my opinion, which you know, I'm not here for my opinion, but the observation was that we can't operate on the protocols that, op that existed prior to this day. I agree with that. And so we say that we're going to have a conversation with a person who has attempted to overthrow the government, but we're going to follow the old protocols, and we're going to have it with Republican and Republican-leaning uh, independents, then it means that we're pretending that we're still in the status quo ante. So then the question becomes, how do you do it? If you do it. Well, well, your, col your colleague, Christiane Amanpour, has some suggestions. She that said, maybe don't do it. No, she said you interview that person, but maybe without a crowd. Right. Maybe you interview that person one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, when we talk about Frost versus Nixon, and the difference that you get when you're sitting there asking question after question after question, this person can't feed off of the crowd. They can't engage in the kind of bullying. Or if they do engage in that kind of bullying, it looks very different in an empty room than it does in a room full of people who are cheering them on. So there is a difference between an interview and a town hall, and sometimes candidates don't want to do an interview. They want to do a town hall, and if they do an interview, they want it to be seven minutes, and they will not, they're certainly not going to sit for a 42-minute interview. And so in, you, in which case, your, your, your position, I'm, if I'm mm -hmm. reading you right, is, well, then you don't do it. Then you don't do it. Okay. I'm not disagreeing with you. I don't run CNN, and I have not done a town hall with Donald Trump. And I definitely agree that when you have somebody, and it's not just Donald Trump. Vivek uh, Ramaswamy's no small potatoes on, on just like saying all sorts of things. Robert Kennedy Jr. is no, is no amateur when it comes to just spreading wildly, uh, potentially dangerous information. And I think that any time there is somebody who
who is reckless with his speech in a way that could harm somebody, I agree that it is an obligation of any network, any TV network, or anybody with a live feed, the New York Times or whoever, to think about that and to think about how they do it, whether they do it, why they do it. So I don't know that you and I disagree, without me coming and giving a position on it, I don't know that I disagree with you or that you disagree with me. So we have time for some questions. Um, you know, I'm going to, to well, this will be my last question, then we can jump in, um, which is uh, 2016, uh, 2024, what do you do differently? Or what should we be doing differently? I think that, um, I think that people, it's not a new lesson, but I mean, I think that there should be more willingness by people in the media to call out lies as much as they can. And, uh, and there should be, and then and networks and newspapers and magazines should stand by people who do that. And it's not about, you're never gonna get Laura Ingram's viewers to, to read the New York Times and trust it. I mean, it's just, you just have to, people are now in their silos and we just have to tell the truth and hope that eventually, uh, like in The Last of Us, people will start leaving the villages, wow, <laughs> and head towards freedom in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. I only made it halfway through that series, so thanks for. I, that's, that's thanks not a, for the it's spoiler. Not a spo alert, it's not a spoiler. It's not yeah. a spoiler. Right. And I'm only like, I still have a few left. Um, okay, so uh, we have time for questions. Okay, sir. Hi, I have two questions. Nope, you have a question. Okay, one. Um, uh, one, how do you plan to counter disinformation in the 2024 election cycle? Is doing fact-checking stories enough? Or should large news media conglomerates with the resources that CNN has uh, undertake massive media literacy programs across the country, including having such programs on air? So um, I thank you for your question. Uh, I, I, don't, I think media literacy programs are for Columbia Journalism School, not for CNN. But I think what is important for us is to not just say something is not true, to explain why it is not true. So for instance, um, don't, you know, here is an example of what we, say, what, what we say we mean when we say Donald Trump's election lies are election lies. Donald Trump wanted, um, now I'm gonna make this up, but I know that there's a, a page in the, in the Georgia indictment that goes through like six of these. 60, you know, he claims 66,000 people who were dead voted in Georgia on election day 2020. And the actual number was four. Like, and that is from conservative Republican uh, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, verified by two different election surveys, uh, recounts afterwards. Like, I think it's important not just to say that's not true, but also to say, here's, here's an example. And I think it is very important for journalists not to get caught up and think, just because this guy's saying things that aren't true all the time, that means this guy isn't, or this lady isn't. Because yes, a lot of the lies are coming from the Republican Party right now. But there are plenty of lies that are, not being, that are being told by Democrats too. And you can't get swept up in like, this guy is lying, therefore this guy is telling the truth. No, no. You have to check 
you have to check it out no matter what, no matter what the party is, and no matter what your feelings are about Donald Trump or Joe Biden. Hi, my name is Claire. Um, I wanted to ask, because you had talked earlier about the, um, you know, working, um, covering the news in the 90s and the kind of respectability politics of that era. And I, I was curious to ask how the industry has changed since then, and especially thinking about, you know, being surprised by the Trump presidency and um, the things that might have seeded that. Is the industry more prepared now to cover maybe the, the more subtle violences of our time? And do, do you think we'd be more prepared in the future to be aware of another Trump-like figure or another fascist-like movement? Well, um, Dean Cobb said something in the Vanity Fair interview that resonated with me, which was we have, it's important for us to know history because Donald Trump is not the first Donald Trump figure. You know, we've had them for, I mean, before Joe McCarthy, but Joe McCarthy, and there's, uh, was, it was obviously a, a very important one, and there is directly connective tissue. Joe McCarthy's pro protege was Roy Cohn. Roy Cohn's protege was Donald Trump. Right. And there are these figures um, over and over um, throughout our, our history. But, you know, I, I, think, I think, I don't know that the media writ large is any better prepared for the next Trump or even for this one in 2024, or whoever the other, per I mean, we, we don't know what the next thing's gonna be. Um, but I think it's just important for people to report the truth and, you know, not light their hair on fire every single, I remember think, saying to Pete, my staff during the Trump years, if everything is a crisis, then nothing is a crisis. You know, if every tweet is like, oh my God, the world's gonna blow up, then, then nothing is that important. Um, and so it's important to keep perspective and for journalists to stay grounded and be taken seriously and be sober and deliver the facts. Um, but I really think it's such an important part of, of covering politics or being a journalist to know history. Um, and uh, yeah. And you get the last question? Hi. But really smart class, really smart. Thank you, we know. Yeah. <laughs> Very we, we know, we, we pick them. And we're really, I mean, it's really great that you're going into journalism because we really need smart, earnest, sincere people to go into this field. It's, it's, uh, it's really important. And stick with it. Do not go into PR. Do not. <laughs> please. Please. Okay. Hi, good evening. I'm Oishika. Um, the question I actually had was in relation to AI and misinformation. And um, increasingly, we've been seeing that most people get their daily news from platforms like X. They wake up in the morning, they just go through Twitter, X, and your basic thing, but that works on algorithms. It works on, and that helps in disseminating more fake news and misinformation. So I was wondering how this has now impacted the news media industry, and as you as a journalist who's with the elections coming up as well. It terrifies me. Um, one time my wife and kids uh, read to me and uh, a description of me that had been generated by ChatGPT. And half of it was not true. It I mean, it was giving me awards that I uh, hadn't earned, so I didn't, uh, I didn't object. No, I said, I that's not true, that's not true. There's a lot that's just not true. It cannot be counted on for ac accuracy or, or, or facts at all. Um, and so it alarms me very much. What Elon Musk is doing to, to Twitter or X is alarming me very much. Uh, removing the verified pin from verified sources of news, for going to war against the BBC and NPR, uh, not to mention individual people like Taylor Lorenz, like is 
horrifying to me. Um, and I've, I've, you know, I, I, I know a lot of people have left Twitter, um, but it's just, it's just an unreliable source. I mean, I remember, there's so much misinformation out there by people who don't care, and by people who care, and, but they're evil, and they want to put misinformation out there. Uh, it's going to get much worse, and one of the reasons why people like Musk and Trump and others want to get rid of the gatekeepers is because they don't like having rules so they can say or do whatever they want and they have the percentage of the audience that's going to believe them no matter what. And their war against the gatekeepers, which is us and you, is, is a, a problem. Uh, and I wish I had a solution, but I do not. Except to, except to call it out. To call it out when it's not true and to call it out every time we see it happen um, and make sure that we don't fall for it. Well, um, thank you for coming to spend um, you know, this time with us. Um, is it patronizing to say I'm proud of you? No, not at all. Yeah, I mean, we start out together. We're trying to figure this thing out. And um, you know, I will give you a kind of honest measure of my, um, of my admiration, which is that uh, no matter where I am, I'm frequently uh, in airports or other places, and I'll look up and I'll see you, and I'll tell people, yeah, I, know, I know that guy. <laughs> it's, very, it's very kind. I, I, I love having you on my show. Uh, your voice is such an important one um, on, on cable, of course, but also your writing. And it's so great to see that you're, you're teaching journalists because I can't think of anyone other than David Carr. <laughs> who would be right. who would be better at it? The, the, uh, granted, uh, very much. So, uh, thank you again, and thank you all for coming. Thanks, out. everyone. Great questions. Thank you again to Dean Jelani Cobb and Jake Tapper. Uh, Lisa, I was just saying to you that was a super substantive conversation that has stayed with me. In fact, a lot of Jake's comments about how fractured the media environment is and how the algorithms are driving people to extremes in their in their feeds is such a smart and important thing to have in mind yeah and also the idea that they're both they go so far back and that they're friends i think they had a great they've had a great chemistry yeah they had a great chemistry <laughs> I, I was going to say chemistry but then i thought maybe that's <laughs> anyway they were great together and uh i also really appreciated the fact that Jake, who's been out on the road all summer promoting his fiction thriller, um, really was here to talk about journalism and serious substantive matters, as you said. But if you are interested in knowing more about his book, which is a real page turner, I have to say, it's called All the Demons Are Here. It's a political thriller, and one of the main characters is in fact a journalist. And we have a link to buy the book on the Honest Simon podcast webpage. So check it out. And thank you to our students, right? Oh, my God. Those questions were great. And uh, there were so many more good ones that we couldn't include them all. But thanks to everyone for you know taking part in it. We'll be back soon with another episode from On Assignment with DuPont winners and other outstanding journalists who visit us at the J School. This episode has been brought to you by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and Columbia Journalism School. It was produced and engineered by recent Journalism School graduate, Alyssa Castles, who is now our digital content producer, which we're excited about. Thank you, Alyssa. Until next time.